Take your Bible this morning. I want to read a passage to you, kind of a follow-up reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And I just want to read, I've tried to read several passages uh, over these last couple of weeks in our mini-series on the church to acquaint you with major portions or at least substantial portions of God's Word that deal directly with the church. And this is this is one of the one of the best, um, if there is such a thing as good, better, and best in Scripture. This is one of the most clear and helpful sections about the church. The entire letter to the Corinthian believers, uh, this first letter which the Apostle Paul wrote to them, is geared towards the life of the local church. And the church at Corinth was a local church like ours. And so he describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and lets them know what that local expression means in the grander scheme of God's plan. So I thought we'd read it together. If you have it, you can begin reading with me in verse 12. Paul says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. And he's talking about a physical body here. Okay? So just like your body has a bunch of parts or members, so it is with Christ. Now, how do you mean, Paul? For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, it's not an issue of ethnicity or of social class. And all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing? Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it, but as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greatest honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with great modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it or parts of it. And this is the word of the Lord this morning for us. I wanted to read that to you because it sets forward one of the most familiar word pictures used in the New Testament about the church. And that is that the church is a body. It is a human body, as an illustration, and each individual who is rescued and brought into the church by the grace of God, by faith, justified, declared righteous before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, each one of those members now, or parts, becomes a critical component of that body. And if you're here this morning, and you're a follower of Christ, you are a part of His body. You are an elbow, you are a knee, you are a finger, you are something, you're an eye, an ear, a nose. You are to be active as a part of the body. 
And so this picture is one of the most familiar and it's one of the most helpful to us. So I wanted to give it to you at the beginning. There are other pictures of buildings being built up and we'll look at that next week. Um, there is the picture of a field being managed, a flock obviously being shepherded. But this illustration is a profound one because it places such a weight of responsibility on each part to play its part. Because without it, the body does not function properly. And so if you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ, you're here with us in a local assembly, you're gathering together, you're accountable to this leadership and accountable to this body, then you are to be active as a part, as a member of the body. That's where that idea comes from. And I trust that as we go through this morning's discussion and the preaching of God's Word, that this will be driven home in your understanding and your responsibility as one who has been saved from your sin. Now, if you're brand new with us, or if you haven't been here for a couple of weeks, we're just taking a break from the book of Matthew. That's where we're studying. We're at the end of Matthew 6. We're getting ready to start Matthew chapter 7. And uh, we're going to get there. We're going to get back to Matthew soon. I keep thinking it's going to be next week. It's going to be next week. And and I want to get back to Matthew, but I'm also excited about this break. We've taken a what was supposed to be four weeks, and we're stretching it out, I think, into six now and maybe seven. And we're taking time to think deeply and biblically about the church. Uh, We are laying a grid work for us as a part of Grace Church of the Valley, this brand new church, to understand why we exist, what we're here to do, how that happens, and what the Word of God has to say about us. And we began by looking at the one who has dominion and power and majesty over Grace Church of the Valley. And he is our head. His name is Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the head, and then there is the guts of the inward part of our church, which is the philosophy of ministry that drives us, it energizes us, it gives us direction. We looked at those ten ministry commitments that we've set here from Scripture that the local body must be about. And so many of you have those. We gave them to you in a handout. You can find those actually on the resource table inside of a membership packet if you like. But we looked at the guts of the church, and and now we're into the last phase, and that is the body. We're looking at the body. What does it look like to be in a local church that recognizes and then submits to the picture presented for us in Scripture? What is it to be a biblical church? We're concerned about that. We desperately want that to be the trait that could be stamped over Grace Church of the Valley. Why? Well, because we're here because of God's salvation work in us. We exist for God's glory. Therefore, if He is the end of all things, we want to accomplish what He desires for this ministry. We want His wisdom to be put on display here. And so we've been looking at a number of passages and a number of topics that the New Testament addresses as the body issues within the church. We began by looking at the leadership of the local church, and today, in the middle, we're going to transition from the leadership to the membership of the local church. And we're going to conclude next week, I believe, I trust, we're going to conclude with one final discussion about the membership of the church. But I trust that this series, this little mini-series, has... Put some things in order for you. Maybe it's reminded you of things that you've known for a long, long time. Maybe it's reminded or refreshed your memory of other churches that you've been a part of that showed these same priorities, that had this same commitment to God's Word. 
And I trust that even if it's your experience that you've never seen this played out. This is a brand new thing. This is first time experience that you have been grounded in your understanding so that when you talk about the church, you have a better capability of rightly articulating what God talks about when he talks about the church and its local expressions that are all over the world. Um, in In every section, there are believers gathered in local assemblies. The question that we've been asking throughout this series is, why are we here? And the answer is, we're here to bring glory to God. Therefore, the implication is, we want to know what God says is the way that we can best bring glory to Him. That brings us then in this current discussion of the body of the church to the final aspect that we're going to talk about in the leadership of the body. We've already looked at several components. We've looked at the role of leadership. And those two roles that are defined for us uh, as exemplary leaders within the church, we have the pastoral team, the eldership, the overseers who give direction and the leadership under the headship of Christ. They are the delegated leaders of the body. They are responsible for the oversight of the souls of the church. They answer back to God Himself, and will provide an account for their stewardship of His people. Those are your pastors. And then the second office that is outlined for us are the deacons. Those who, through exemplary service, provide instruction and guidance as the functional heads of the ministry. They provide the opportunity for the pastoral team to give themselves to the Word of God and to prayer and to the spiritual care of the flock by taking responsibilities of the functional needs, the day-to-day needs of the ministry, and freeing up the time of the pastoral team for the sake of those things that are most weighty on the pastoral plate. And so those two offices define the roles of leadership at Grace Church. Then we looked at the character. We looked at the the qualities that must be uh, true for one to be considered, even considered for leadership within the church in either of those roles. We looked at their qualifications. We looked at the passions that must drive the pastoral perspective. And we looked then at the motivations that also must guard the heart of the pastoral team. That brings us finally to our last component, and that is the function of leadership at Grace Church. And all this is, folks, is just an opportunity for a few minutes this morning for us to just say, how does this actually flesh out? I mean, what does this actually look like here in our local assembly, in our local expression of the body of Christ, where we're all members, those of us who have joined with this ministry and been accountable to this ministry, where we then give our service? What are these realities, the roles and the character, how do those flesh out in the ministry here? And I just want to take a few minutes and It must be a few minutes or we won't get very far in what we want to give our main attention to this morning. But I want to talk about the functional aspect of leadership here at the church. Okay, the function of leadership at Grace Church. We already know the two offices, pastors and deacons. Pastors are the under shepherds who give direction, oversight and equipping care to the ministry. Ephesians chapter four tells us that pastor teachers are one of the offices given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. And you, beloved, are the workers of the ministry. 
And our role as pastoral team is to equip you, to give ourselves entirely to your spiritual care, to equip you for that work. And so the idea of a trained professional who is the minister, because everyone else is just the audience, is a misnomer. It's a misunderstanding of what the Word of God outlines as the directives, the function for leadership. Now, who are these? This is a review. Who are the pastoral team here? Myself, um, as teaching pastor, as lead pastor, if you will, David Morris is my fellow pastor full-time. We're both staff pastors. We give all of our time each week to the pastoral ministry. David is an associate pastor. That just simply means he bears a different set of responsibilities than I do, and yet we share the same weight of responsibility. And then Dave Morris, or Dave Muxlow, rather, is a lay pastor who serves with all of his energy in what free time he has. And let me just speak to the staff versus lay idea. Scripture makes no command that pastors need to be staffed. It clearly gives us an understanding from 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, that some pastors, if possible, should be staffed for the sake of the body. And yet, when it comes to bearing the weight and the load of the judgment, of the accountability before God, those who are lay and those who are staff bear up under that together. And Dave Muxlow is no exception. In fact, he is the super elder. He's the super pastor. He is co-eldering. He is an elder and an active elder who is a faithful elder at Grace Community Church in Sun Valley, California, where I assume he's worshiping this morning, dealing with some business issues. And he is eldering and faithfully eldering and pastoring here at Grace Church of the Valley. And we are thankful for his willingness to bear that weight. That is an enormous amount of responsibility. And he takes that very seriously. He has poured himself into many of you and will continue to do so and loves the opportunity to serve here. All three of us do. This is our highest privilege and joy. So that's who the pastoral team is. Now, there are two other individuals who have been brought to our membership in our members meeting for the prospective pastors in training. And that's just a program we've developed to make sure that those who show early signs and gifts that would fit the qualifications for pastoral ministry, those who have a desire, First Timothy 3 talks about a desire for pastoral ministry, that those individuals then are given the, the, um, the opportunity to be developed so that they can be examined and in being examined can be affirmed and ordained for pastoral ministry. And so there are two on the docket for the pastor in training program. And we lift up before you all, Andy Muxlow and Daniel Jackson, for those roles showing tremendous um, gifts and tremendous energy and desire for the pastoral ministry. We're in a 30-day waiting period right now where... Those issues that might bring into question their qualification for that role of pastoral ministry can be brought to us, and we invite that from any of you, member or non-member here. If there are issues which need to be addressed, then address them with those men individually, and please, if there is no response, bring those to our attention so that we might be careful, always be careful to watch over the leadership of the ministry. So those are your pastors, and those are your two prospective pastors in training, or as David and I call them, and Dave around the office, the PITs. And I don't know if that's going to stick. I guess you call them pits too, I guess if you wanted to. 
Um, that sounds a whole lot less flattering. Um, the pits. It's just the pits uh, to be a pastor in training. Okay? What do the pastors do? Well, if you remember, we talked about the roles, and I answered this question with six qualities or sw- six functions that pastors are supposed to be carrying out from the New Testament's commands. All right, here they are. If you forget, here they are. They are to oversee the church. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. We've spent a bunch of time in Acts 20. They are to rule the local church. They are to give the leadership, the direction to the church. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 talks about those elders that rule well, and especially those that give themselves to preaching and teaching. There are, they are to pray for the sick. We see in James chapter 5 that the elders are to be called for for prayer, specific pastoral prayer. Um, they are to care for the church body in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. And they are to ordain, they are to set apart by the laying out of hands other pastoral team members, other elders, the leaders within the church. So this is the function of leadership at Grace Church for the pastoral team. Let me define those for you. They are to oversee the church. The pastoral team at Grace Church of the Valley will give the direction and careful attention to every component of the ministry. There is no part of the ministry of Grace Church that can exist or should exist outside of the loving oversight of the leadership of the elders, of the pastors. That should not happen. And it is our desire to give careful attention and intentional Uh, care to each component of the ministry number two they are to rule the local church first timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 the pastoral team will bear the primary load of decision making on behalf of the flock this is where we would differ from maybe what many of you have experienced in a congregational church a congregational church leadership structure places the burden of decision making upon the whole in in almost every case And maybe you've been a part of certain times when that didn't work out very well. And those meetings fell apart. We believe that according to the New Testament, the elders bear the weight of responsibility for the decision making, for the direction, for the vision of the local assembly. They are to teach and preach. The pastoral team at Grace Church of the Valley will bear the load of instruction for the flock. And we will take it very seriously to train up others who will provide teaching for the church. And so we work with others who show that gift in their, um, their desire to serve the body and want to see others teach, but all of that will come under the oversight of the elders who are primarily responsible for the instruction, for the doctrine of the church. This is a part of what God has designed for their role. They are to pray for the sick. The pastoral team will give themselves for the sake of the flock to pray and care for their spiritual needs. Here's what that means functionally. Okay? Maybe you don't think about this, but we pray for you through the week. We pray for you. If we don't know you, we pray for you. If we got your name on a on a piece of paper, We're praying for you. If we don't know your circumstance, we're praying Paul's prayers for you. We're praying for your spiritual well-being at the least. If we know of issues, we're continuing to pray for those issues. This is the command that's given to us so that when those who are in special circumstances call for the elders to come and pray, this is the general practice of the pastoral team. We pray for you because we love you. 
And we care for you. And we want to see you develop and grow. And so we pray. And we will be committed to praying for you. David and I just last week were encouraging one another to be more faithful in our pastoral prayer life. Not in our personal prayer life for the general uh, prayers of our own lives, our own issues, our own situation, but in our pastoral prayers. David prays for your children by name. He has a list of them right in front of his desk where he prays for your kids and your grandkids. We both pray for you. We pray with Dave together, the three of us, we pray for you. And we will continue through this year to pray through our role, praying through names in sections. And I just want you to know that this is a serious commitment of our ministry, not an afterthought. Number five, they are to care for the church body. The pastoral team will intentionally interact with the flock so as to watch over their souls with faithfulness before the head of the church. Folks, we believe it is our responsibility to actually know you. To know you spiritually. To know where you are as much as we can. To interact with you at a level that goes beyond the superficial. Goes beyond where you went on vacation last week. Goes beyond what's going on with your car or what's happened in this particular circumstance. But actually where you are in your thinking. How is your walk with Christ? That's the function of leadership within the local assembly. These are the commands and they must be fleshed out. And they will be. We are committed to fleshing these out by God's grace here at Grace Church. Intentional and direct personal interaction with the flock for the sake of building them up and caring for them. They are to ordain other church leaders. The pastoral team will recognize and you will help us recognize others who are gifted for leadership and ordain additional pastors for the sake of the flock and its care. That's the pastoral function here. That's going to take a lot of getting used to for some of you, and yet I think for many of you this will be such a return to what you have once experienced. We desire for God to continue His gracious work in us and to make us what we see Scripture modeling as the ideal. Will we fail? Absolutely. Will we, will we be sinful in some of these activities? Will sin creep into these activities? Absolutely. And yet we desire for God to make the pattern of this ministry an intentional function of leadership for your benefit because we desire to see you raised up for the glory of God, for you to be built up, for you to be the part of the body working properly as you were created to do. Okay? Deacons, what is their function? Well, who in the world are the deacons around here at Grace Church of the Valley? And that's a great question because you're not going to find any. There aren't any deacons here at Grace Church yet. And yet there are two men who are also uh, prospective deacons. And we're also in the same 30-day trial period for them to be uh, evaluated by you or for you to raise concerns with them and with us about their character and their qualities. But Marty Wilbanks, who is in the back, and Jeff Spomer, who is on my left, are both being presented as potential prospective deacons. Jeff gives oversight to our finances Marty gives oversight to so much of our functional needs, our practical day-to-day needs and week-by-week needs here as we gather together to worship. That's the maybes. There aren't any guarantees. Um, I've teased with these guys that it's been a rough week or two, and I don't think it looks good. 
Um, but I'm just joking. We're excited about what God is doing, and we're excited about their lives and the model of service that they have been and the willingness that they have expressed to give us the opportunity to give ourselves entirely to what is most critical in the pastoral ministry. While the deacons do not bear an authoritative role in the church, the deacons will provide exemplary service under the leadership of the pastoral team for the sake of you, the flock, the membership of the church. So these are the roles and how they function here at Grace Church. We desire for these roles to be recognized in your life, then for the opportunity to examine the faithfulness of your life so that we can carefully, as Scripture commands us as elders, as pastors, we can rightly identify those who would hold these offices. In other words, those who would be pastors should be pastoring as a way of life because it is the desire, it's the fruit of their life. Those who would be deacons should be recognized as deaconing, as taking responsibility and serving in the functional aspects for the sake of benefiting the flock. It's vital for us to see and to grasp the functions of leadership. It really is important. And I know maybe you're sitting here thinking, is this really necessary? It is necessary. It's necessary because you're responsible to be accountable to this leadership, particularly your pastoral team. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, you're commanded to submit to your pastoral leadership. Why? Because they care for your soul and they'll give account for you before God. And so you ought to submit to make their ministry joyful. And it's almost impossible for you to submit to what you don't know exists. And it's almost impossible for you to make joyful what you don't even know is being attempted. So I want you to understand the function, the intentional functions within those roles and with the character of the leadership here at Grace Church. If you really are a glutton for punishment, I mean, if you really are into this, you can pick up a copy of the bylaws, otherwise known as the worst reading you'll ever do, okay? Somebody said, this thing's like an insurance document. Say, yeah, absolutely it is. The bylaws outline with a lot of other issues, but they do outline the functions of the leadership team, of the pastoral team, of the deacons who serve as servant leaders under the pastoral direction. All of that is outlined in the bylaws. You can pick that up, and if you haven't, or if you check the box and you were really lying, okay, you didn't really read that, uh, then snag that and you can check it out. I know that I know what it means to redefine read, okay? For all you who filled out a membership application and had to check the box, did I read the bylaws? Um, yes, I did, but I define read. <laughs> read means my eyes went over the bylaws. If you want to see the details, you can actually read that comprehensively. And I know many of you did. I'm sure you did and enjoyed it devotionally. But go back to those bylaws if you want to know more. Okay? Okay. That's the function of leadership. And that is important. If you have questions about that, Dave, David, and myself are available for those questions. We are we're open. Please come and ask. Um, there is no question that should be off limits for you to ask. Come willingly. And uh, we will we'll work with you to see if we can answer those questions about the function of leadership. Now, one of the most natural components of leadership um, is that they actually lead something. Uh, and, and in this case, leadership within the local church actually leads somebody's. Okay? There, are actual in, in, there are actual people who the leaders lead. And the assumption, and that's what we're going to look at secondly here this morning, is the assumption of the New Testament 
is membership with a local church. And so I want to address this issue, and we're going to do this for a couple of weeks, the assumption of membership at Grace Church. That is, it is an assumed reality for Christians to be directly and formally connected to a local body. The common understanding of our day is that membership in the local church is kind of a give or take issue. It's a take it or leave it. It's kind of up in the air. Maybe you've heard the seemingly insurmountable jab at church membership that show me in the Bible, show me the verse that says that I've got to sign out on a piece of paper or that I've got to go through a class or I've got to do anything to be a member of the church. Maybe you've heard that, maybe you've thought that, maybe you've said that, and I, I, I can empathize with the culture in which you live, and yet I think that the Scriptures assume and imply a very real and formal association with a local church. In other words, if you're a part of the body of Christ as general, that is, with every other believer across the planet, if you are a part of that group, it is assumed of you that you're also formally connected to a local expression of that body. And I hope that I can help us as we think through this together. Unfortunately today, churchgoers have become consumers for the most part. They come to sit down and evaluate and see whether or not it is valuable for them to be a part of this group. And yet the picture from Scripture, the assumption from Scripture really is that the body of Christ in a local church is made up of a bunch of um, people who have not come to consume and not come to evaluate and to make a value judgment, but to give themselves, as 1 Corinthians 12 just talked about, to give themselves for the sake of that local assembly. So to come for the sake of community, to commune with the body locally gathered together. There are a couple of key books, and we'll put these on the website, that's why I mentioned it earlier, But if you're jotting these down, there are a couple of key books that I really think would help us if you're interested in these issues or if you're struggling and you're not going to agree with what I'm about to say. You might want to snag some of these books which will help you process and think through what Scripture teaches about this issue of membership within the local church. One of them is called Stop Dating the Church. Stop Dating the Church by Joshua Harris. It's put out by Multnomah, I believe, publishers. It's a tiny little book. Uh, It's another one of those books that will boost your morale. Stop dating the church. In other words, marry it. Um, Stop playing the field. And it's a great little book. It's got a lot to say from Scripture and a lot of helpful ideas. Another one is called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. A little pamphlet that you can buy online for a couple bucks. And it will outline some of these issues and really help you see where we come from in the New Testament with this issue of membership. Nine Marks is a ministry. It's a connection of local churches, a network of local churches, which we are part. Nine Marks Ministries is based out of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Nine Marks Ministries produces that little pamphlet, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. There also comes in a full book form as well, if you'd like to snag that. Also, if you're a radio person or an internet radio person or a podcaster, Uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church, Desiring God Ministries, John Piper has just recently preached a series on baptism and church membership, which I have benefited greatly from and I think would be a blessing to you as well. If you're someone who's on a long commute, you might want to look up 
You can get it online, download it, put it in your iPod or whatever it is that you do, and utilize that as a resource if you don't have opportunity or a care in the world to read, okay? Which I think probably is some of us. These common ideas make it more difficult. The common idea that membership is a non-issue, it's kind of like, well, some people are really into it, some people aren't, but the Bible doesn't have anything to say, really makes it more difficult for us to think rightly about the local church. So here's what I want to do for us this morning. I'm thankful that as we embark on this discussion, this preaching about membership, I'm thankful that the Word of God isn't silent, okay? Right out of the gate, I want to tell you there's a lot to be said from Scripture about formally joining together and being accountable to a local body. I'm grateful for that. Secondly, as we start out on this, I'm grateful that there are men of God who have stepped up now in recent days and are speaking boldly about this issue because it is helpful for others to, to, to give us insight and to think with us about what the New Testament has to say about church membership. Two of them are Joshua Harris, stop dating the church, and Mark Dever. In fact, Mark Dever says this, the practice among Christians of church membership has developed as an attempt to help us grasp hold of each other in responsibility and love. By identifying ourselves with a particular church, we let the pastors and other members of that local church know that we intend to be committed in attendance, giving, prayer, and service. We increase others' expectations of us in these areas, and we make it known that we are the responsibility of this local church. We assure the church of our commitment to Christ in serving with them, and we call for their commitment to serve us in love and to encourage us in our discipleship. This is an accurate statement about what it is to be a member of the church. So let me, this morning, if, if you will, let me challenge you. Let me challenge you to value and assume the reality of membership within a local body. Let me challenge you that God intends for you to be connected to a local assembly. If it's not this one, there is one that you are to be connected to. Now, how are we going to do this? Well, I'm going to split this up into questions is how we're going to talk through this. And so I'm going to ask a question, and then we're going to deal with the biblical data that informs us about that question, and then I trust that will help us come up with the appropriate answer regarding the New Testament's assumption of membership and the presiding assumption here that those who are with us will join with us formally. Number one, how can pastors pastor without church membership? How can pastors pastor without church membership? How can elders lead without church membership? How can overseers oversee without church membership? Take your Bible and we're going to turn through several passages and go to 1 Peter chapter 5, which we've spent quite a bit of time in over the last several weeks. But let me draw your attention back to something that I think we've pointed out already in this study. 1 Peter chapter 5, it's obviously addressing the elders of the church, the pastors, commending them to shepherd the flock. That's the command that's given in verse 2. He says in verse 1, So I exhort the elders among you, this is the Apostle Peter, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, that is the gospel, 
Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those. And then here is a description of those. Alright? Here's the description. In your charge. So these commands about and these descriptions about what it is to shepherd the flock of God are directly related to a group of individuals who fall under the charge of these local elders that Peter is addressing. And so there is a grouping of people that they are to understand that they are to give oversight to, that they are to shepherd, that they are to lead without domination, that they are to set an example for. And ultimately, verse 4 says that if they'll do that faithfully for this grouping, those in their charge... This is the result. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the question that comes from this text is, how is it that the shepherd is to shepherd when there is no designation of the sheep in his or in their charge? How is your pastoral team to be accountable before God to look forward to the chief shepherd returning when there is no definable grouping of individuals in their charge. The elders of Grace Church of the Valley, the pastoral team that will give oversight here, is not responsible for every Christian in the valley. It's obvious that they're not responsible for every Christian who has ever come in and sat in here on a Sunday. That would be an undefinable charge. And yet it seems that Peter is addressing these elders with a description that would help them understand they are, they are responsible for a, a particular grouping of people. The same idea if you turn back a couple pages, go left to Hebrews chapter 13. We already mentioned this verse, but let's go to it and read it together. Hebrews chapter 13, the same idea comes out of this section. This one is to you. This one is to the flock, to the, the general body. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Without a definable membership, without an identifiable listing of who is accountable to this local assembly, how would I ever and how would we ever be able to come before the King of Kings in the judgment and give account for the watch care of souls. That's not just a general command for the eldership. That is a very specific command that must be kept. There is to be an oversight of souls. That is individual souls. Clearly the assumption here is that this fits perfectly with 1 Peter 5. There are souls that are in the charge of the elders. And it is those souls that they must shepherd, and it is those souls that they will give account for. So, these passages seem to imply that the way a pastor pastors, and the way the elders elder, is directly associated to identifiable groupings of people. The third text that speaks to this indirectly as 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 and 11. 1 Timothy 5, and this is a very specific situation. 
If you've been with us on Sunday evenings, we're studying through these pastoral epistles, so we, it hasn't been too long since we've been in 1 Timothy chapter 5. And uh, when you who have been in that study get there, you're going to remember this. This is about the widows within the church. And at least here we find that there is precedent for setting a list of widows who were accounted for within the church at Ephesus. Timothy is told in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled, that is listed. Let her be listed if she is not less than 60 years having been the wife of one husband. And 11 says the same thing, but refuse to enlist or enroll younger widows for their passions draw them away from Christ and they desire to marry. The issue here in context is that the church was to care for the widows if their family was not caring for them or not able to, and if they were left destitute, which was the situation of widows in the New Testament, the local church was supposed to take account and care for their needs. Paul here commends Timothy to make sure that that list of widows is a carefully defined list. So within this, we have the assumption that there is already a grouping of the people that are part of that church, which then produces this subgrouping of a list of widows who fit the demographic for these commands to care for their needs. All of this assumes that pastoral leadership happens in the sphere of an identifiable membership within a local assembly. Otherwise, these become almost impossible is not every widow, not every widow who is claimed to be a believer or who is a professing believer, it is not every widow within a massive region, it is a listing of widows within the local assembly where Timothy and the elders give oversight in the city of Ephesus. There was only one church in Ephesus at this point, one true church, and it was under the direction of Pastor Timothy and the elder team. They were to take this list very seriously. The commands for the pastors and the pastoral team to care for, lead, and give account for the flock are nearly impossible, and they are impossible to accomplish without a definite membership within the local church where those pastors serve. So the question is, how can pastors pastor without church membership? And the answer must be, at best, very insufficiently. At worst, they cannot do it. These mandates cannot take effect without a knowable membership. Now let me just address something that comes up occasionally with the issue of church membership and sometimes with baptism. Two things that are very similar in their um, cultural disconnect from us, membership and baptism. And they really come back to one central idea. Maybe the question has come up, why is there a process for membership? Why do we have to fill out a piece of paper Why do we have to read those bylaws that we check the box on? Why do we read the doctrinal statement and and say that we're willing to submit under that doctrinal statement? Why do we fill out all the information about our testimony, about how we came to Christ, about what the the gospel is, what the truth is about Jesus? Why do we have to write all that out? Why do we then have to sit down with a, a pastoral member and sit down and have an interview with a pastoral team member? Why do we do that? I mean, how can you justify that When in Scripture, there's no such thing. You see it in Acts chapter 2. They came to Christ, they were baptized, and they were added. Which is also an implication, in Jerusalem at least, of a number. They knew who was in the church in Jerusalem. They had numbers. So they had a list. They knew what was happening. But that was a seamless process. 
And so can it just be that if I attend that I'm, I'm a member? That's what I am. No, absolutely not. And here's why. Because in the New Testament, in both the issue of baptism, why do we have a process for being baptized to be a candidate, and with this issue of membership, both come back to the same issue. The cost of discipleship in the New Testament time period was unavoidable. Okay? The cost of discipleship was unavoidable for you to stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, brought with it an undeniable cost to you. You were a part of a wild sect group that believed that a guy that everybody knew died on a cross, killed by the Romans, actually raised from the dead. And you believe that. And you're going to follow this guy who we saw die. It has an an undeniable cost to you. You've given up everything to follow Christ. Those are the passages of our New Testament that are so hard for the American Christian to grasp. And yet to come to the local assembly and say, I'm going to gather with these believers. I'm one of you. I'm a follower of Christ. That was a substantial commitment on your part to identify yourself with the Christians. Today, you don't have to be told the cost is all but gone. You can be here this morning, you can claim to be a Christian, and it has no cost. In fact, claiming to be a Christian means almost nothing in our culture. Have you seen the recent polls? Like 78% of Americans are believers? Really? 78%. We're all Christians. It doesn't mean anything to be a Christian anymore. The name means nothing to you. It costs you nothing. And so when someone comes and says, hey, I'm a follower of Christ and I want to be a part of this local assembly, we say, great, but can we examine that profession of faith a little bit? Can we hear you talk about the gospel? Can we get to know how the Lord saved you? Can we, can we kind of just hear the story? Can we, can we give you some doctrinal stuff and say, are, is this where you are? Do you, do you agree with Scripture? Can we do that? And, and that will help us then know that you have truly counted the cost. And we can be accountable before God to say, we've not made the church a place of believers and unbelievers, but the membership, as much as we can, with our oversight in our humanity, we give account for them as those who have truly committed to Christ. I hope that makes sense. That, that is the heartbeat behind any process. The heartbeat is the cost is gone. So we need to examine the profession where we're left with the so real danger of having the church be the confusing house of both Satan and Christ. Because followers of both have come in willy-nilly and they're all accepted as a part of the church. This is the danger that produces in us the concern which ultimately, practically, produces within us an extra-biblical an extra biblical process. It is not something we derive. We do not find, have a two-page application and make sure you do an interview. What we do have is a clear command that the church is for the followers of Christ. And it does include an identifiable membership. That is the assumption of your New Testament. Therefore, We place a high priority on this because this is the means for pastoring to actually happen. Otherwise, pastors just become the speakers 
and the body just becomes the audience. And we're right back to where we've been for so long in our country with pew sitters and professionals. When the reality of the church in the New Testament is a body that works in harmony together with leaders that are under the headship of Jesus Christ, that give direction and oversight for the care of souls, so that the church is built up and matured in Christ. That's the picture. And that's desperately what we want to see here. Therefore, we believe membership is a critical component for the ministry of the local church. Question number two. How can churches discipline without church membership? Okay, how can pastors pastor? That's a fair question. How can they give account for souls that they don't even know are the souls under their charge? I mean, how do they do that unless they have an identifiable role, an identifiable membership? And then how can churches discipline without church membership? Take your Bible and turn to Matthew chapter 18. Let me just show you. This will just take us a moment. just want to show you a couple of passages, just two, to help drive this home. Matthew chapter 18. Maybe you're familiar with this section, verses 15 down through verse 20. Jesus here is giving instruction about brothers who are in sin. All right, again, you're going to find the assumption here is church membership. The assumption is church membership. Beginning in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, this is a personal issue, your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. In other words, if he responds rightly to your confrontation, the issue is over. You've gained your brother, he's restored, and the Lord is glorified. And that happens often in your lives. I know it does. It happens in your families, with your believing children. There is confrontation, restoration. But, verse 16 says, if that initial confrontation does not end well, he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And so, in other words, take two or three other people who are familiar and aware of the situation and bring them to the brother or sister. And bring the issue again and say, I still think that this is a critical issue for you to grasp, and it is one that puts you at odds with Christ. You're sinning. This is normal, folks. We're supposed to be doing this with each other. This is what life within the body looks like. When we see sin or we're sinned against, we deal with it. Galatians 6, 1 and 2 are the other passage that would back this up. Now verse 17. Bad goes to worse. Verse 17, he refuses to listen to them. But if he refuses to listen to them, here's the next phrase in verse 17, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And this is the, 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 the end of the road for this discipline process. With the purpose of restoring a sinning, professing believer, the last stage is to bring it to the church. That is to make a public display of one individual's sin before a group of people. Now surely this issue is critical enough that this is not just anybody who happens to be there on Sunday who gets to hear what is going on in the sinful, unrepentant practice of a professing and member of the church. The church is to hear this, and the church then is responsible collectively for the discipline of that person. 
This assumes there is a membership. This is not just anybody who's there. This is not just any Christian in the community. There's not a general bulletin put out in the paper. This is a grouping of people that specifically take the responsibility for one another and then bear the responsibility for discipline within the body. Jesus goes on to affirm that this will be blessed. He says, Do you whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And don't miss that that verse is a part of the discipline. If two or three are going to a brother because they want to see that brother restored, don't worry, there's a fourth who's there with you, and it's the Lord Himself. He's a part of that process. One of the most misused verses in our Bibles. How can discipline happen in the church without church membership? You say, well, is there any other proof of this? Absolutely there is. One more passage, and then we're going to finish up. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This is one of the ugliest pictures we see in our New Testament epistles. Same church that we started with, where Paul is instructing them about the body life, but 1 Corinthians 5 paints a tragic picture of the church at Corinth. Paul says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Alright, here's the scenario. There is an incestuous relationship ongoing and well documented within the local church at Corinth. And Paul says, I can't believe this, but word is coming to me that there's a man in the church who is having an incestuous relationship with his stepmom, which is the picture by his father's wife, and the pagans don't tolerate this. And yet the church at Corinth is allowing this to happen. And Paul says in verse 2, And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Let him be removed from among you. Let me ask you something. How is it that we are to go about as a local church removing from among us one who has never been counted as of us? How do you put out what has never been counted in? How does that happen? How can there be any discipline? Every time we would go to discipline at this level, the only response would be, well, I'm not a part of the church. Yes, I've attended for a couple years, but I'm not really a part. Uh, You can't do this to me. Well, if you've joined under the accountability of the eldership, the pastoral team, and the accountability of the body, this is the reality for you if you go on in unrepentant sin. You will be put out from what you have been counted in. You say, well, that's not convincing. Well, keep going then, because in verse 12 and 13, I think we're even more grounded in the assumption of church membership. Verse 12 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outsiders. Purge the evil person from among you. So Paul goes even further to say, what place do I have to place judgment or to ask you to respond to an outsider who is living in an incestuous relationship? There's no basis. There's no basis for that. There's no basis for us uh, as a local body to make public defamation of one who's living in sin who's not a part who is considered 
in Paul's words, an outsider. So to have outsiders, there must also be insiders. And Paul speaks directly to that and he says, purge the evil person from among you. The assumption here is that in Corinth, in the one church, Grace Church of Corinth, there were those who had been counted as insiders. They were counted with the body. They were accountable under the eldership. They were accountable to one another. They lived this life. They were pastored by the pastors. Their souls were given account before God by that pastoral team. And here in Corinth, Grace Church of Corinth, there was such a a knowledgeable and definable membership that when one lived in unrepentant sin like this, Paul could easily say, put him out. He's been in and he is defaming the name of Christ with his unrepentant sin. He must be removed so that the world is not confused. The world must know that those who join themselves to the local church are in fact followers of Christ. They do not live this way. Who is the church in Matthew 17 and how are those who must be put out to be put out from what they have never been put in? John Piper says it's hard to believe that just anyone who showed up claiming to be a Christian could be a part of that gathering in Matthew Matthew chapter 18. Surely the church must be definable as a group to handle such a weighty matter. You know who you mean when you say take it to the church. Removal from the church necessitates a definable membership from which one is removed. That's the church role. That's the assumption of your New Testament. Next week, there's one final question, and that is, how is the church to grow without church membership? And we're going to come back to this issue and deal with that one last question. And I think it is the most moving because it is the, it is the design of our Creator and it is the design of our head that we as members of the body are a part of a body for the sake of building it up. Our sanctification as a, as a Christian, our sanctification depends upon the body of Christ. Growth in Christ is a team activity. And it happens within the realm of the local church. So what? So what? Well, you and I must understand what the church is and then apply those realities to ourselves to make it the priority that it is to our Savior. Because our Savior died to rescue and redeem the church. And He will cherish the church throughout all of eternity, Ephesians tells us. John Piper goes on to say, all those aspects of membership are rooted in the truth that the local church is an expression of the universal church. It is a smaller, it's a micro of the macro. Part of what it means to belong to the body of Christ, that is the universal church, is to belong to an identifiable local body of Christ, which is the local church. Now, that leaves us with several groupings of people here this morning. And I want to be gracious with all those groups. Some of you are here this morning and you're not a believer. You don't follow Christ. You have not bowed your knees to the gospel, to the good news that salvation comes only through faith in the finished work of Jesus on a cross to pay the penalty for sin. 
You've never bowed your heart, come to the end of your own effort to save yourself and trusted Him alone to do all of it and to accomplish all of it. And for you, I I would say this morning, come, believe, place your faith in Him and he He will redeem you. He will buy you out of the slavery of sin. He will forgive you entirely. This is the work of Christ. And this is His church. This is His church. It's not our church. It's not our tradition. This is the church as defined by His Word. It's the grouping of those who follow Christ as justified sinners. We would love nothing more than for you, unbeliever, to come to faith in Christ and be a part of His church here at Grace Church of the Valley. Some of you are here this morning and you claim to be believers but you are unwilling to have that claim put to the test by a formal membership with a local assembly. You may have claimed to be a Christian for years, and yet you are unwilling to let that come under the microscope of a body of believers to which you are accountable and to an eldership, a pastoral team, which gives direct care to your soul. That is a part of why the church exists, for the sake of validating our profession of faith. If you're here this morning and and you profess faith in Christ, I would encourage you that the assumption of your Bible is that you are connected to others who profess faith in Christ and to delegated leaders over those individuals. Some of you are here this morning and you're believers and you just have never encountered the assumption of membership in your New Testaments. And I would encourage you not to rashly make any decision or rashly make a judgment for or against what we've encountered this morning, but to prayerfully consider these passages, seeking the Holy Spirit's illumination for you to understand this assumption so that you might obey this assumption and act upon it with a heart that is set in the right place. Some of you are believers and are members of this local church or another local assembly, and I would encourage you this morning to evaluate whether or not you rightly consider the intention of membership. Do you see it as cause for accountability for the sake of being pastored, for the sake of being a part of the growth and development and even the discipline of the church? Or do you view it as a social network, as a club, as something that you feel like you should be a part of? Evaluate it, consider it. And set your heart and your mind according to the Scriptures. Allow it to renew your mind so that through the renewing of your mind you might be transformed even further into the image of your Savior, Jesus Christ.